0: Turn with me in your Bible once more to the second chapter of Exodus, and Exodus, as I've mentioned, is the second greatest act of redemption that has happened in history, and as the second act, greatest act of redemption, it foreshadows the greatest act of redemption, which is uh, the salvation which is accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Exodus chapter 2, uh, as I've mentioned already, this passage really marks a turning point in the history of Israel who up until this point have been in Egypt. And you know the story, they've been suffering under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. Jacob and his family had gone down to Egypt where the Israelites remain for some 400 years and faithful to his promise God multiplies their number so that they become a mighty nation of people and that is direct fulfillment of the promise that God originally made to Abraham and chapter 1 of Exodus tells us that there was a new pharaoh who had come to power who did not know Joseph who did not know all of the good that Joseph had done And this new Pharaoh sees the Israelites as a growing threat. And so he forces them into slavery, uh, trying to control their number, their population. Uh, He demands that all sons born to Hebrew women be drowned in the Nile River. And so it is in the midst of such dark and difficult circumstances that a son is born born to a particular Hebrew man and woman. We find out later their names are Amram and Jacobed. They hide their infant son for three months, and when he could no longer be hidden, uh, his mother prepares a little basket, uh, places her infant son in that basket, and then sets it among the reeds of the riverbank there along the Nile. Well, it just so happened that the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to the river and sees that little basket. She has one of her servants fetch it for her. When she opens it, she discovers that there's a little Hebrew baby crying to the top of his lungs. Now, you can imagine that scene. The baby's sister asks if she could go find a nurse, and you know the rest of the story. She goes and finds Jacobed, the baby's mother, who then gets paid by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse her own son. And it's all just uh, evidence of the providential working of God behind the scenes because this baby is Moses. And he's the very one that God is going to raise up to deliver the Israelites from their bondage. So the birth of Moses marks a decisive turning point in the history of Israel. The fortunes are about to change for the people of God because Moses' life is a fulcrum upon which a new chapter of freedom is about to open up. And yet Exodus chapter 2 also marks a turning point in the life of Moses himself personally. And if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we'll learn that there are 40 years that pass between verses 10 and 11 here in Exodus chapter 2. We're virtually told nothing about Moses' childhood, nothing about what it must have been like to grow up in the palace of the Pharaoh, nothing about all of the wealth, nothing about all of the opportunity that Moses would have been afforded. The New Testament fills in a few of those details in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin where we're told by Stephen that Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. So that means Moses has a very impressive background. He has a highly credentialed resume as far as Egypt would have been concerned. But none of that is what qualifies him as Israel's deliverer. Now, you and I know Moses as the man of God that history shows him to be. But the truth is, before God will use a man, God, first of all, has to make that man. And that's what we see happening here in this second chapter of Exodus. So if you've got your Bible there, let's read Exodus chapter 2, verse number 11, where the story picks up in Moses' life. One day when Moses had grown up Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and we drew water for us. He drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now listen to this. And God heard their groaning And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So I want to preach once more from this subject, the turning point. A turning point both in the life of the Israelites, but in particular, a turning point in Moses' own life. life. What you see happening here in this last part of Exodus chapter 2 is the making of the man of God. And it's in a wilderness place that God is going to shape Moses into the man that he wants him to be. And often the making of a man or a woman often happens not in these big, flashy, spectacular ways, not the mountaintop moments of life, but in the ordinary rhythms of life, the ups and the downs, the turning points of life. That's how it was for Moses, and it'll be that same way for us. But you see, here at this season of his life, Moses is learning some very valuable lessons that are going to remain with him all throughout the remainder of his days. Now, there are four lessons here. Uh, The first two we looked at last week. I want to give you the last two. But the first two were this. Uh, Moses learns a personal lesson in identity because verse 11 reveals that Moses knew who he was. Evidently, there came a point in his life The New Testament tells us that it was when he was 40 years old that Moses, it came into his heart for him to go out and visit his brethren, the people of Israel. Verse 11 here says that he went out to his people, and that's a detail that's mentioned twice, the fact that he sees these Israelites now as being his people. The idea is there's this shared sense of solidarity with the Israelites, and that means all those years that he spent in the palace of Pharaoh, in the schools of Egypt, that had not diminished his understanding of who he was. So when he decides to visit his brethren, he goes out as one of them. Moses knows that he's a Hebrew, he knows that he's a descendant of Abraham, he knows that he is someone who's come to inherit all of the blessing and the promises. Uh, that were given to Abraham and his descendants. The writer of Hebrews expresses it this way in Hebrews 11, that it was by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That is, there came a decisive turning point in his life when he turned his back on all that Egypt had to offer him. All of the luxury, all of the comfort, the creature comforts. The identity that, is, that Egypt wanted to assign to him, the name that Egypt wanted to attach to him, Moses turned his back on that and so identifies with the people of God. And the writer of Hebrews says that this was by faith, that it was a faith decision that Moses makes in his life. He considers the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to the reward His ultimate hope was not in what Egypt could give him, but his hope was in what God had promised. And so we learn from that a very valuable lesson, the lesson of identity. Do you know who you are? The world has a name that it wants to give you, but do you know who you really are as someone who's been uniquely made in the image of God? Have you come to find identity, meaning, purpose, a new name in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Has there been a decisive turning point in your own life where you've turned your back on the world and you've placed your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ? Because you will never really know who you are until you first of all know whose you are. And so Moses learns this very valuable personal lesson, and it's a lesson in identity. Now, there's a second lesson that he learns, and it's a painful lesson, A painful lesson in humility. And that's a lesson that all of us have to learn at some point or another in our lives. Even at multiple points in our lives. Because here in the text we read that Moses has noble intentions. Because when he goes out, having identified with his brethren, he just so happens to witness an Egyptian taskmaster cruelly beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And So Moses intervenes. Uh, he's determined to do something about it, and yet he makes this hasty decision by killing the Egyptian and hiding the man's body in the sand. The text says that he looks this way and he looks that way. The one direction he does not look is up. And, and the idea is Moses is making a hasty decision It's an attempt to do the right thing But he does it in the wrong way And it's a very appropriate illustration Of what it looks like when we try to serve God In the energy and in the effort of the flesh Moses is zealous He has zeal But it's not according to knowledge Uh, Here you have a picture of service Apart from submission You know you can go about serving God But not be submitted to God Submission comes first Doesn't it? Uh, casting all that you have upon the mercies of Christ. That comes first. It's easy for us to get ahead of God. It's easy for us if we're not careful to become so agitated and, and, and impatient when we feel like things are not happening as quick as we would like for them to. It's easy for us to get ahead of God and make a hasty decision in life. And folks, that's why we need to be men and women of prayer and men and women who spend time with God in the pages of his word, walking with God. You know, the Christian life, it's not a sprint. It's more like a marathon. And so Moses, he's learning this painful lesson in humility. Now, the next day, when he goes out, he sees two of his fellow Hebrews striving together. And so here he steps in as a mediator and says to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Well, notice how the the man responds to Moses. He says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian? So there's this idea that there's a loss of moral credibility. That's what happens oftentimes when we get out of the will of God. We act in the energy of the flesh as believers. If we're not careful, we can lose our witness in the eyes of those that we want to have a a witness to. So, Moses realizes his cover's blown. The thing has become known. He has this fearful reaction. Verse 15 says that he flees from Pharaoh and he he flees all the way to the land of Midian. So, after this failed attempt at saving his people, Moses is now running for his life. He's a fugitive. A man on the run, he's no doubt exhausted, no doubt full of emotion, wondering where his life is headed. And and we get all the way down uh, to the end of verse 15 and we discover that he sits down by a well. A well in a dry place. You know, the Bible, in the Bible, we, we discover that wells are often places where things happen, places where people meet. A well is often a hub of social activity, a place of interaction, a place where random encounters turn out to be very providential encounters. It was at a well where Abraham's servant on a quest to find a bride for Isaac, it was there at a well that he meets Rebekah. It was at a well where Jacob met Rachel John chapter 4 talks about a providential encounter that Jesus has with a particular woman of Samaria at a well. Wells are often places where things happen. Wells are often places where where you see the providential workings of God in someone's life. And so it's not surprising then that we see the providential hand of God working in in Moses' life. The arid desolate desert of Midian. This is going to be his zip code for the next 40 years of his life. Now remember, we can take Moses' life. He lives to be 120. We can sort of divide his life into three categories, each containing 40 years. His first 40 years were spent in Egypt. D.L. Moody says that he's there in Egypt, first 40 years, thinking he's somebody The second 40 years are going to be spent somewhere in the backside of the Midianite wilderness. And it's there he's learning that he's really a nobody. But those aren't wasted years in his life because it's there in the wilderness place of life that he's going to meet the great somebody. And then Moses is going to learn that the next uh, last 40 years of his life, he's going to be learning how that great somebody can take nobodies like us and use them for his purposes. And so the third lesson then that Moses is going to learn at this juncture in his life is a patient lesson in obscurity. Identity, humility, and now here we see Moses in a place of obscurity, Midian. Now that's interesting when you think about what the Bible says about Moses, how he had been educated in all of the wisdom and all of the learning of the Egyptians. He had received an education from the finest schools that Egypt had to offer. You know, Speaking of schools, you may be interested to know that there are some 4,414 institutions of higher learning in our own country. Did you know that? That's a lot of colleges and universities, isn't it? Of those, 2,832 are four-year colleges and universities, 1,582 are two-year schools, According to latest data, there are 1,050 community colleges in our country. So there's just any number of places in our country where a person can go to receive a top-notch education. Now you know that U.S. News and World Report, every year they release their top universities. Usually you have the Ivy League schools like Princeton and MIT, Stanford or Harvard or Yale. They're somewhere in the top three. Duke is somewhere up there too, regrettably, I have to say. But now, all of you, I'm sure all of you, you know, you're probably proud of your alma mater. I would imagine you wear your class ring, your, your, your school colors, you go to football games, uh, you've got some type of poster, maybe with a mascot somewhere, that kind of thing. Moses was educated. Moses had been to school. But let me tell you something. God is going to enroll Moses in a different kind of school here. One that Egypt could not offer him. I love how Chuck Swindoll says it. God has a school and there's nothing usual about it. It has no dormitories, no science labs, no athletic fields. It's not listed in any catalog, magazine, or website. It has no endowment, no pomp and circumstance, no state-of-the-art facilities and faculty. Moses is going to receive an education from Wilderness University. (laughs) That's the school where God places Moses. Moses is going to be enrolled in class. He's going to take a class in Wilderness 101. And the school colors are black and blue. You go to chapter three, you'll you'll discover that that word wilderness is a word that's used to describe where Moses ends up. Moses flees to the land of Midian, and we find out that he's going to be tending sheep in this backcountry wilderness. And it's highly significant because most of his life is going to be spent in this wilderness. Again, his first 40 years were there in in the finest that Egypt had to offer. Well, now, really, the next 40 years and then really the rest of his life, Moses, the majority of it, the vast majority of it is going to be spent in the wilderness, both his own personal wilderness and then the wilderness as he's leading the nation of Israel. That word wilderness over in in chapter 3, verse 1 is used to describe where Moses ends up. And it's an interesting word that's used there in the Hebrew text. It's the Hebrew word midbar. Moses is in a midbar. And that, that word is significant because it comes from a Hebrew root word which means to speak. And the idea is often the midbar is a place where God speaks The midbar is a place where God communicates some of his most important words, which, by the way, in in, in this third chapter of Exodus, Moses is going to meet God in a burning bush, and God's going to speak to Moses. So I find it interesting that Moses is in a midbar, and that very word comes from a root word that means to speak. Don't think that your wilderness is a wasted place. Don't think that the midbar, the dry places of life, the dry seasons of life are useless places. Now, they're not pleasant places. But folks, listen, oftentimes God has communicated the most important truth in my life in the midbars of life. Not so much the mountaintop places of life. Not so much when things were going well in life. But oftentimes when it seems like the bottom falls out, when I've gotten ahead of God, when it seems like I've failed or I've dropped the ball and I'm confronted with my own weakness and my own mortality, it's often in those moments, those midbar moments, that God has something to say. God has something to teach. So God's going to enroll Moses in the college of midbar and he'll put you in the same school. So spiritually, this wilderness will be an enriching place for Moses. It won't be a wasted place. It's going to be an enriching place because as a man on the run, he ends up in the desert of Midian. Now, more than likely, this was located somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula. By the way, it is a radical change of geography uh, compared to where he had been. The first 40 years of his life, he'd been uh, living in... The Egyptian, uh, the Nile River Delta, which I've got a picture of that. They'll throw that up on the screen in just a moment. If you look there, it's a green, lush place. That's the Nile River Delta. That's where Moses spends pretty much the first 40 years of his life. Uh, An oasis of sorts. Everything that you could want. The finest schools, luxuries, delicacies in the palace of favor. All of that was Moses' there in, in Egypt. But then, he's going to flee all the way to the desert of Midian, which is a different place. It's a desolate place. It's a rough place. That's a major, major change in terms of geography, isn't it? And yet, it's here in this Midbar that God is going to do his greatest work in Moses' life. That's what the Midbar is. It's often a place where, where you're stripped of your creature comforts. Where you're placed in an uncomfortable position. It's a difficult place, even a dry place, but but God is using that in the life of His servant. He did that for Moses, He'll do the same thing for you. And, And by the way, you study biblical history and you'll see that this is often the pattern that's repeated over and over again. With, with the servants of God. God gets them away from the ordinary uh, trappings of life and He puts them in a midbar. He puts them in a wilderness. He puts them in a desert place where He teaches them valuable truth. So, spiritually, this wilderness is going to be an enriching place for Moses. Uh, relationally, the wilderness is going to be an eye opening place for Moses. Because notice what happens in verse 16 where we're told about the priest of Midian who has seven daughters. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but Midian was also a son of Abraham, whom he fathered by his second wife, Keturah, after Sarah dies. Which means the Midianites were cousins of the Israelites, and eventually they would become the bitter enemies of Israel. But here we read that Moses finds sanctuary in the home of the priest of Midian. Now his name is mentioned there in verse 18 as Ruel. We also know he has a second name, Jethro. But Ruel, this is a name which means friend of El. El being another word for God, the God of Abraham. So evidently this man and at least his clan uh, are worshipers of the one true God. Well, Verse 17, uh, Moses sits down by this well. The daughters of Reuel come to water their father's flock. And verse 17 says the shepherds came and drove them away. The fact that they're referred to as the shepherds, both in verse 17, also verse 19, this sort of indicates that this was a recurring problem with these guys. Think of these shepherds as the neighborhood bullies. And by this point, we're well aware that if there's one thing Moses does not like, it's a bully. And so verse 17, Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. So once again, we see Moses in the position of deliverer, don't we? Once again, he sees the need. Once again, he's acting as a savior. But this time, we don't read about anyone being buried in the sand. We don't read of any dead shepherds here. So... That just tells me, folks, that the Midbar is often a place where your character is forged and proven. Did you know that? That was true of Moses. Later on, it's going to be true of Israel as a nation. Decades later, Moses is going to be on the threshold of the Promised Land. And here's what he's going to say to Israel after their long years of wandering in the wilderness. Moses is going to say, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. What was the purpose? Listen to this. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the wilderness then is going to be a place where God tests his people. Where God teaches his people something about his own gracious provision. God's going to provide for his people in the wilderness. They're going to have manna every morning. He's going to meet their daily needs every day in the wilderness. Israel learns this as a nation. But before that's true of the nation, it's going to be true of their leader. Because Moses is going to learn this same lesson during these 40 years in his own midbar. Moses is going to learn about the faithfulness of God. It's during those years that he becomes a husband. It's during these years that Moses becomes a father. Verse 21 says Moses is content to dwell with Ruel. He marries his daughter Zipporah. Moses and Zipporah have a son, and Moses names him Gershom. And you know what that name means? It means sojourner. And the reason behind the name is there in verse 22. Moses says, for I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses is looking back on his life. Uh, he's, He's turned his back on all that Egypt has had to offer. He realizes that he's not home yet. He's a man who's looking forward. He's a man whose ultimate hope is in the promise that God has made. He's not living his life looking in the rearview mirror, folks. There are a lot of people looking, trying to live their life while looking in the rearview mirror And you may feel like you're under some type of a cloud of shame or a cloud of regret, feeling like your best days are behind you, but aren't you grateful? There's a God who's promised, and you can place your faith and your trust and your confidence and your hope in his promises. God says, I've got a future for you. I've got something for you. I've not forgotten about you. You may feel like you're in a mid-bar in life, but listen, that's the very place where God wants to come through And make himself known to you in a powerful, personal, intimate way. So Moses is having to learn a very patient lesson in obscurity. I'll leave you with this and then we'll close. The last lesson that Moses has to learn. It's a very practical lesson. It's a lesson in divinity. Look at the last couple of verses there in chapter 2. While Moses is in the Midbar... During all those many days, the king of Egypt died. So there's another political transition that's happening in Egypt. And all the while, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. While Moses is in the wilderness, Israel is still in bondage. They're still suffering. They're still hurting Under the cruel, heavy yoke of Pharaoh. But look at verse 24. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The first part of the chapter, we see Moses. All of the verbs, really from verse 11 through verse 22, all of the verbs... Describe the actions of Moses. But here there's a noticeable shift in the narrative. Because it's not Moses' actions that are being emphasized here. It's God's action that's being emphasized here. God hears. God remembers. God sees. And God knows. That word know there, it's the word yada in Hebrew. It's a word that means intimate knowledge. The idea is the suffering of his people was not something that escapes God's notice, but he is intimately acquainted with it. In that way, it points us to the suffering of one who's come to identify with us, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born as one of us, who entered into our world, who's the suffering servant described in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, folks, that just tells me in the mid bars of life, we're not alone. Aren't you grateful that you're not alone even though you may feel like that? When friends and family may not be there. When physical health may no longer be what it once was. When the house is empty at Christmas time this year. Because there's no one calling, there's no one coming by. Or when you find yourself in the midbar of your own personal failure in some way. Hope is not lost. God is active. God sees. God knows. God remembers. That doesn't mean that he's forgotten. No, the fact that God remembers means that now it's time for God to act. Now it's time for God to act. On his calendar, God's going to act on behalf of his people. Because God sees and knows their suffering. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer said this. Every blow of the hand that buffets you. Every cut of the scourge. Every scorching hour under the noontide sun. Every lonely hour when lovers and friends stand aloof. Every step into the valley of the shadow, every moment of sleep beneath the juniper tree is watched by the eyes that never sleep, that never slumber. (laughs) Isn't that just a good word? Now some of you, you, you're in a midbar. A desolate, dry, arid season of life. But you know something? God has something to say. Because it's in the midbar that he communicates precious truth precious truth into our hearts and lives with heads bowed and eyes closed if you don't know christ as your savior this morning what's keeping you from coming to faith in jesus he loves you he died to save you he's the risen lord come to him in faith we're going to sing here in just a moment you need to come you need to pray you need to get someone to come pray with you that's fine You, you, you say pastor i'm in a mid bar I am just, I need to hear the voice of God in this season in my life. Maybe you just need to come and bow and pray. I pray you have all the liberty in the world to do that this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, in our lives. You've proven yourself faithful time and time again. Have your will, Lord, in our hearts and lives. For Christ's sake, amen.